The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, our inaugural show. Today we are going to be joined by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, and Father Anthony Chicada as we discuss the 30 years that have passed since the 1983 expulsion of nine priests from the Society of St. Pius X. So Bishop Dolan, Bishop Sanborn, and Father Chicada, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, I suppose we should probably start at the beginning of the 1970 founding of the SSPX as a pious union. I think it's important to note that we don't, the society did not ever start as a large religious organization the way we might think of the Cistercians or the Benedictines, but it was most, more like a loose confederation. And I think Father Chicada, you wrote a little bit about uh, the legal foundations of the society. I think it's important to note this from the beginning so we understand the spirit of collaboration that was part of what was going on. Well, initially the uh, society was founded as what's called a pious union. And uh, that's an entity in canon law that uh, it can be clerical or it can be a lay union. And the purpose of an organization like this is to promote, sometimes to promote public worship, uh, sometimes to promote a devotion such as uh, the rosary, sometimes to promote uh, charity and almsgiving. That would be, for instance, like the St. Vincent de Paul Society. So the uh, Society of St. Pius X was um, first called the Fraternity of the Apostles of Jesus and Mary. And it obtained recognition from the arch, or rather from the Bishop of Freiburg as a pious union. And one of the goals of it was to, um, in line, I believe, with one of the provisions of uh, Vatican II, was to uh, help spread priests throughout the world. So it, it was uh, initially uh, envisioned in canon law and founded as, as a uh, rather uh, simple organization, as I say, somewhat the, the level of a Rosary Confraternity or the Vincent de Paul Society. Well, when we look at it that way, I'm sure that you and Bishop Dolan and, and Bishop Sanborn didn't go to a cone with the idea that we're only going to join a religious organization if it's erected in, in the way of a traditional um, religious congregation or religious order. You were looking for a way to combat modernism and to to find a traditional Catholic priesthood. Is that fair? Oh, oh yes. I mean that that was that was certainly the case that we were looking for a traditional seminary with traditional formation in order to be traditional. That is to say, true Catholic priests. 
and anything else would just be sort of a, a vehicle or a means, a means towards that towards that end. Yes, at the time too, you were so desperate that you really didn't care what it was, uh, as long as it uh, was traditional. You were so happy to get out from under the uh, the horrors of the modernist seminary that you didn't give a lot of thought to what it was. You just assumed that it was a uh, a group of people who were organizing to uh, make a traditional priesthood. And Archbishop Lefebvre himself um, recognized this. I remember him saying in a conference once that, you know, I, I realized that um, most of you gentlemen would not be here uh, if we didn't I remember that, yeah. I remember this crisis that. in the church, yeah. And he said, so sure, you, he said you'd be Benedictines, Dominicans, diocesan, sure, yeah. Right. So it wasn't right, really... Go ahead. Uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, uh, something that was really in the, in the forefront of our minds as, as joining this uh, special religious order we felt a calling to. Right. Yeah. But I had decided not to become a priest. I was I had left the Novus Ordo Seminary, and I thought, well, that's that. When I heard through a priest that used to say the Latin Mass in Detroit about uh, Archbishop Lefebvre and his seminary, and I decided to go over for that. So it was simply that. It was a way. It was simply in order to to be a Catholic priest because the other way was not Catholic. So that was pretty clear from the very beginning for all of us. Yeah. Well, Bishop Dolan, did you find your traditional Catholic formation in a cult? Well, yes and no. Uh, there were, um, as um, you know, we, I guess you could use the Happy Meal analogy. There were elements of Catholic formation, and then there were other elements uh, that were sort of lacking in substantial anchorage. Um, so, really, you it was a it was a very um, it was a very sort of a confused. Uh, it was a confusing time, I suppose, and it was a very confused uh, offering that, Arch, that Archbishop Lefebvre presented. It was hardly the glowing city on the on the hillside. I tell you what, and any any anyone uh, who lived through that era could certainly give uh, give good examples of that. What do you remember, Bishop Sanborn? Yes, it was uh, yes a mixed bag. I would say it was mm-hmm. something that resembled a seminary perhaps of 1963 or 64. There were there were elements of the traditional and uh, there were elements of the new. For example, it took the, they used four missiles to say a low mass because right, the right. priest started at the altar and then he, he said the intro it at the sedilla, which was typical of the coming Novus Ordo, uh, or then mm-hmm. you know, it was already in vigor. Then they moved over to a pulpit and read the. Uh, they said the intro it at the sedilla, the the epistle they read to the people at uh, at a pulpit, and then they crossed over to another pulpit and read the uh, a gospel uh, toward the people, and then he finally ended up back at the altar where he used the fourth missile, and um, uh, and there uh, they left out the last gospel. And uh, they uh, actually left, uh, put up only two altar cards <laughs> because yes, they weren't right. saying the last gospel, so it looked rather odd. Uh, <laughs> so you had this hybrid uh, traditional mass. It was not a John the Twenty Third traditional mass. You would never have recognized it. Uh, it was a 1964-65 version of the traditional mass, but it was in Latin. And uh, so you know you you always held out uh, a certain hope that things would get better uh, you you realized that you know this was imperfect but uh, you hoped that things would get better uh so uh, uh so that that's the uh, 
uh, that was my impression of it at the beginning. But you were so happy to have anything besides uh, what was going on in those modernist seminaries that you would take practically anything. Uh, well, I mean, I remember. Recorded, he, had, yeah. he had the yeah. Latin Novus Ordo, so I mean, that was probably the best sure. you could get, right? In the Latin Novus Ordo, I never saw. I, maybe once. It was it was a rare bird. Nobody ever said it. <laughs> At least in my my uh, <laughs> my experience. Yeah, you know, the monastery I was in had the Latin Novus Ordo uh, done in a very. Um, uh, you know, very restrained way with the ceremony and so on. And lots of Gregorian chants. And they had communion in the hand, though, along with it, which was uh, extremely strange. So um, I thought when I was going over to a cone that I would see, you know, the traditional Mass in all of its glory, but it was a, sort of a mixed bag. You know, as far as uh, some of the courses went, I, uh, the, uh, for instance, the moral theology course is absolutely excellent, but I remember the scripture course uh, was, um, one of the scripture courses, the introductory course, was actually uh, virtually the same thing um, that I had gotten in the modernist seminary in Milwaukee. So it was, a, it was a mixed bag in any event. But we were there because it was better than uh, what we had come from. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I remember being thinking to myself that when I arrived, January of '73. Oh, finally the traditional mass. Will this ever be glorious? And I remember how bitterly disappointed I was when I saw this odd affair that they had, which I had lived through in my parish church just a few years before, and it was very sad to see the same thing instead of the, the full traditional mass as it uh, as it should be offered. And then Father Chicado, at this point, why don't you tell tell them that about the traditional scripture about the scripture course? How you went to see the director of the seminary? Oh yes, yeah. so I, w- I went to see the uh, director of the seminary uh, to complain to him. Uh, it was the Canon Berto, who is actually a very good moral theology teacher, and I went to him and I said that the uh, introductory course to scripture. Uh, that you're giving me is, uh, or that I'm being given by this this priest is is modernist. It's the same course that I got in the modernist seminary, and so he scratched his head a little bit and he said, um, "Okay, we'll dispense you from it then because you've had it already." <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's so that's so typical of the Acone spirit. And then Bishop Sambor, this might be a good time for you to talk about. I remember when I first got there. The seminary was in an uproar because of the rector being the Abbe Masson, and there was actually a novena going on against him. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, dial back years, you know, 40 years later, it's the same thing with Filet, right? It's, nothing has really changed. Yes, it, it, again, it's, uh, it all boils down to their stance vis-à-vis the Novus Ordo. Yes, uh, that undefined position and how how much we're going to be with them or against them, and uh, so uh, and Father Masson at the time was too much with them and uh, had liberal ideas, and there was so there was this uh, house uprising and uh, uh, pressure put on Archbishop Lefebvre to sack him, which uh, which happened, and uh, mm-hmm. so. You know, that has been the history of that organization. As I said in my last newsletter, it's a 40-year-old opera buffa. It's a, it's a comic mm-hmm. opera where people cannot and will not decide what their position is with regard to the new religion. And so it'll well, go on for another 40 years. You, well, you all managed to make your way through 
in any event and become ordained. And I think it's important for people to know that um, there wasn't the issue with sedevacantism that there is now in the society that Bishop Dolan was, was always known as, a, as a time, the seminarian known as uh, Daniel Dolan was a was an unknown sedevacantist. Um, what was the attitude of, towards sedevacantism in the seminary, and how is that different from how the society deals with it today? Well, I think you could say that at the beginning, that is to say after the, the first uh, suppression by the Vatican during the reign of, Pi, of uh, Paul VI, that um, actually you were sort of being, you were viewed as being on the archbishop's side and loyal to Lefebvre if you were a state of a contest, and it was certainly well received. This would, Bishop Sambon would say this, just be an excellent example of the classic zigzag. But at, at a certain, for, for a few years there, until the famous bear hug of uh, JP2 with Lefebvre at the Vatican, which changed everything. But until then, you that was a, not only an acceptable position, but it was viewed with a certain amount of favor. Yes. I remember uh, then Father Gerard de Laurier, and I believe it was in 1973 or 74, but uh, as I recall, it was before the suppression of 74, uh, that he gave a conference about it. Uh, it was by invitation only, but it was not secret. Uh, he gave a conference. It uh, was presenting his thesis uh, concerning the vacancy of the sea. And uh, I mean, there were seminarians who, who with whom he spoke uh, that were uh, state of Acantis. So he, he didn't. He didn't keep it a secret. It was not something that you whispered. It's just that was what you held, and um, nobody really said anything about it. It wasn't really uh, even known by the name uh, no, of right. at that point. That's only something that actually came up in the 80s, that you just uh, believed that Paul VI was the, not a Catholic and was a false pope. Yeah, and right. and uh, the, that was that. Right, and the, and the first priest ordained by Archbishop Lefebvre, an Anglican convert, uh, Peter Morgan, he was certainly well-known for promoting that, as was uh, Father uh, Barbara, who at that time, the noted French traditionalist leader, was uh, a friend of Archbishop Lefebvre and was well received at Econ in the first years. He too. So there, there it's, you know, it's the same thing as the liturgical questions. There, there, there was for years, there is absolutely no controversy about it. In fact, I can remember at the first little German seminary in Wiesbaden in, in, in Switzerland, I can remember uh, Father Schmidtberger making sort of philosative Vacantis comments about how they had taken down or covered up the picture of Paul VI and they <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's difficult. Yes, well I remember the right first day that, that Father Schmidtberger arrived with uh, uh oh well, here's the uh excuse me, uh, Argentine Cardinal uh, Bergoglio has been elected the anti Pope. So um Yes. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, um, the uh, but I remember they both uh, Votsak uh, fathers Votsak and then uh, seminarians mm -hmm. and Schmidtberger were open state of Acanthus. I remember having a discussion with him the day he arrived, and they were very very clear about uh, the uh, there being state of Acanthus, and that was in 1972. So you know there was the. Uh, there was no uh, 
no controversy about it. It was just something that you could say, and, and uh, although you know you you didn't make a big uh, scene out of it either. Yeah. Well, and, and so you all made it without uh, being expelled for a set of a contism, and uh, one by one make it back to the United States. I think uh, the then Father Dolan was probably a bit too dangerous to send to America, so I think he was banished to to England. Uh, so actually, I, I requested. You know, I requested to go to England because uh, my hero, my priest hero, Father Morgan, was there, and I thought this would be the place to go. So I went there, and I spent a few, a few, a few months there working in England. <laughs> so, because mm-hmm. as I said, there wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't any any controversy about anything like that any more than there was about the uh, about the liturgical questions. Um, so, in other words, like what what should be emerging for our listeners, Stephen, at this point, is that the, the picture is not at all what you think. So, the the, the what was Acone like in the or in the early seventies when we went there? Well, it was confused. There were modernist forces and traditionalist forces battling, you might say. Archbishop Lefevre was um, a diplomat sometimes, and then sometimes more. Uh, or more strident, shall we say, like the Lille Mass is a good example of that. Um, and then, um, as regards the liturgy, it was the same thing. Every the, these, these different traditions were certainly accepted. None of none of these things were controversies at that time. And if anything, to be a quote-unquote hardliner puts you on the side of Archbishop Lefevre from at least 19, seven, four years, maybe, 74, 74 78. 78. Yeah, 74, 74 years, you, you were on the, on yeah. the, uh, the good yeah. side. Yes. We were on, and we, we were, you know, sometimes, indeed, we would bask in his approval. And then other times, when the winds changed from the Vatican, then uh, not so much. Well, yeah. sure, when he said something like, we have nothing to do with the conciliar church, which is a schismatic church, which has nothing to do with yeah. Catholicism, I'm, I'm sure you all were doing fine. That's right. We were, we were good with that, as they would say today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, of course, uh, as, you're, as we're listening to the show, we're getting a lot of news reports that are coming in from the, the latest claimant to the papacy to, uh, since Vatican II who is apparently going to take the name Francis. Um, yeah. But we will we'll be mm-hmm. doing a show on that um, hopefully soon. I've been keeping uh, His Excellency Bishop Sanborn and Father Chicago quite busy with, with interviews over the last few days, so um, we'll get to that when we can. But as you, of, don't, as you, don't think now, they, you don't think they staged the announcement to um, draw people away from the show, do you, Stephen? Upstage <laughs> us. I think that's Boy, I, very likely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to file that under under my trad conspiracies hat. Um, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, so, so uh, in any event, all of you managed to be ordained, um, uh, despite your great sin of set of a consism, and um, you all go to your different apostolates. Bishop Dolan, you went to England, and Father Jakarta and uh, the then Father Sanborn went back to America to bring the faith to the colonies. And I think it's important to note two things um, when we're looking at the situation. One, everyone that I've talked to uh, from the Nine has expressed that they came here with the intent to gain ground for the Catholic faith for our Lord Jesus Christ. It was not to gain territory or gain ground for the Society of St. Pius X. Obviously, they, they they could be one and the same as long as they were working in the same interest. The second 
as they were establishing uh, houses, much like you described the seminary uh, atmosphere in a cone as not always consistent, sometimes confused, subject to all kinds of forces, uh, you throw in legal issues uh, around owning chapels and faithful who had been run out of their parishes and are now trying to create their own places of survival, there wasn't a consistent policy. And I'm, I'm sure, Father Chicada, as, as Burster, you can speak to this issue, but I'd be interested in Bishop Dolan's uh, take on how this was in England, because I know there were lots of uh, lay people involved there. Well, the English were impeccable because they had all been properly trained by, by Father Morgan. So they they lived the way actually a lot of our faithful lived in our chapels. That is to say, well, we're just, we're just Catholics, and we don't have anything to do with this new conciliar church. And, of course, we have the old mass without any changes. And that's what you found in England. It was delightful. And that's, in effect, what we were able to do in our chapel. There wasn't any controversy. Every now and again, of course, there was some. That's how Archbishop Lefebvre got all the letters uh, denouncing me. But but usually everybody, that's because, why did they come? They wanted the true faith. They wanted the true Mass. And um, that's what we did. That's what we did. As uh, regards the way um, things developed in the society, what you have to uh, uh, be wary of, I think, when you look back at history, is sort of anachronism. And you've... Um, kind of project back, people project back to those beginning days, the idea uh, of the Society of St. Pius X that they have now, like this uh, worldwide uh, empire and, and this, this big brand with all of these properties and institutions, etc. It really wasn't like that um, at all in the beginning. And uh, as far as uh, whatever... Um, as, as far as uh, how we lived and how property was to be held, uh, there was never any uh, consistent policy on that. In the beginning, um, the archbishop, at least in the United States, was um, uh, interested in having laymen actually own the property. That's, In fact, that's how a cone was owned. It was owned by uh, three Swiss laymen because he was afraid that the uh, priest would be subject, say, to pressure from the diocesan bishop to uh, turn the property over to the diocese. So there's several, actually several different uh, types of uh, policies when it came to property. And as far as having chapels, that was not uh, initially envisioned, certainly not in any of the rules of the society. It was more envisioned that you would um, go into Novus Ordo churches where uh, you were wanted, and then uh, offer the Mass there, or go in and function in a diocesan seminary. So there are no real clear rules or guidelines, anything like it's the that. Work that. The work that we did was, was the work that was was done sort of automatically by good priests in France, say, uh, the old priests Mass centers, and was also it was done by Father Morgan in England. That work was not spearheaded, directed, or inspired in any sense by Archbishop Lefebvre. He was still hanging on to the idea of um, maybe connecting with some bishops, and uh, I remember a conference at, towards the end of the school year in um, 73 or 74, about, must have been 73, about uh, sending us to as seminary professors someplace. And I remember thinking, well, now that's funny, because there you have Father Morgan with all these mass centers. Shouldn't we be doing that work? So once again, there was always this tension, sort of two different approaches, 
but it was the the work of the mass centers was just sort of um, spontaneous work uh, on the part of Catholic priests. It wasn't anything inspired by the Pius X Society. Yes, that's true. I remember that uh, that the there was no talk of going out and founding uh, no. what would be renegade mass centers. Uh, right. But he did tell Father then Father Kelly in 1973 to go and say mass on Long Island. So you know he he evolved uh, as the situation evolved. evolved, and so but there was no set policy. And he uh, uh, then Father Kelly said mass in his brother's garage. I remember it. I went to mass there as a seminarian. And then uh, they acquired a house later on in East Meadow, and that was in the name of the New York Friends of the uh, Fraternity of Pius X or something like that, and that was controlled by lay people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there, was, there was no set policy about anything. The whole thing evolved and also flip-flopped as it went along, according to circumstances and pressures and Mm-hmm. Yes, because so, at, at one point we had wanted to, um, uh, uh, because a traditionalist priests in different parts of the country had had difficulty with uh, lay boards of directors controlling chapels. Uh, we proposed that uh, uh, instead we we priests um, would uh, control these. Uh, the corporations that own the chapels. So that, uh, I think we did for a while, and then at a certain point, at about 1980, then um, Archbishop Lefebvre changed the policy on us again and said that um, he didn't want this anymore. And we had, there were churches in three places, one in in Michigan, uh, in Iowa, and in, in another one in Pennsylvania, where the lay people wanted to get churches, and we had to tell them that, no, we can't have anything to do with it. Now you have to get them, because the policy has changed. So it it went back and forth. So that, that, uh, I guess, where are we, Your Excellency, Your Excellency, Father, where would we say we are? About 1978, right before the election of John Paul II? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we yes, we're we'll going through these yeah. issues. And um, sure. what happened, uh, for those who don't know, what happened with John Paul II that changed things for the society? The bear hug. The bear hug, yeah. Sure. Sure. That, that changed everything. He went to Rome shortly after the election, and John Paul II uh, gave him a big hug, uh, typical yeah. of John Paul II. And there they discussed the whole thing, and... Uh, John Paul II tried to be very fatherly to him, and uh, and there was hatched the formula of accepting the council in the light of tradition, and it was hatched by John Paul II. And so Archbishop Lefebvre latched on to that very much, that this is the key, that, that we can accept the council in light of tradition, that is, give it a hermeneutic of continuity, uh, essentially, uh, give it a, a, a spin. Yeah. Uh, that's the only thing you could call it—a spin, uh, saying something that it really didn't say, uh, but we can understand it or have it that way. Uh, that's what everyone really meant by it, or at least that's what Archbishop Lefebvre meant by it. And so that became the banner of the uh, Society of Saint Pius X, accepting the Council in the life tradition. And uh, then the uh, uh, there was this great movement started to reconcile with the modernists and to gain regain the approval of the modernist hierarchy for the Society of St. Pius X. 
Now, a curious thing that happened in this time, just a, as a footnote, is that after the suppression took place, the uh, Archbishop Lefebvre that decided that the society graduated from a pious union, uh, the way it was founded and recognized by the Diocese of Fribourg, mm-hmm. uh, and graduated to a uh, congregation of priests without vows, which is a big step up. <laughs> Even though it was a suppressed congregation, that happened in 1977. I remember getting the papers in the mail. Uh, we just got these papers saying, "Well, by the way, we are," uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, uh, I thought, "Huh, you know, that's uh, interesting." And the uh, so uh, that, that's just you know, the part of the evolution of this thing. So he obviously wanted to do that in order to. Uh, have the Vatican recognize uh, it as a, a more than a pious union, and to to get it recognized as something like that. So uh, the uh, but in 1978, uh, that's when everything changed, and then the liberals were the good guys, and the Sedevacantists were the the most evil creatures that walked upon the earth. And the, uh, anybody that expressed any kind of hard line with regard to the modernists, short of Sadievacantism, uh, he was held in disrepute. Yes, and, and this, this had happened rather quickly because uh, shortly in, in, in August of the same year, we were having a, a dinner at Oyster Bay with Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, myself and a number of other priests, and um, I was going to press him a little bit on the Pope question, and this was before the, uh, uh, really before the election of JP2, uh, JP and so I brought up the question of religious liberty, and I said, is it, uh, uh, is it heresy? Uh, and then he said, yes, of course it is. And then I said, well, how does that uh, affect the question of the Pope? Uh, should, uh, doesn't it mean that a heretic cannot be Pope? And then he said, uh, very famously in French, I, I, um, I don't say that the Pope is not the Pope, but I don't say that you cannot say that the Pope is not the Pope. Uh, Bishop Sanborn could give us that in French. So uh, he, and he even laughed because it, it sounds very uh, uh, amusing in French. There's a lot uh, of peas in it. A lot of Peter Piper picked the peck of And we all laughed. <laughs> and we thought this was great, but then he uh, soon got the bear hug, and everything changed. But this is doesn't this this all illustrates exactly the uh, personality of Archbishop Lefebvre and the whole history of the society. That is to say, in a sense, all all of the, the, the all the politics here are personal. And um, he the you know, dynamic. He was a, a very diplomatic man and also someone who wanted to please his audience. So if he was with us, he would take a slightly more hard line. And if he was in the Vatican, he would be slightly more more agreeable. And um, he always, as a diplomat, he would always try to, to, to continue that, that balancing act. But uh, I wanted to mention, too, it, uh, Bishop Sanborn says, very interesting. All of a sudden, we became a society of priests without, um, without vows. We also found ourselves to be a society of priests without any rights. And that, that too, has never changed all these years. You have... As Father Chicago says, the only right you have in the society is the Miranda, right? You have the right to remain silent. <laughs> Anything you say can and will be used against you in a kangaroo court. Uh, and that has never, ever, ever changed. That says those, those are 
those are some of the some of the some of the great truths. There's no such thing as canon law. There's no such thing as that balance the right of priests. The society, back to the time of Archbishop Lefebvre, never, never, so for supposedly priestly society, took any care for its members who were sick, maybe mentally ill or or a breakdown, anything like that. No, they were always just thrown out. They were never taken care of. And if you if you objected to with the policy of the day, you too would be thrown out. And that has never changed. That's going on still today. So it's um, it's not a priestly society. It's an anti-priestly society. Actually, if you look at it that sense, what you do to one of these, my least brethren, you do unto me. Wow, how sad. How sad. Yeah, the, so this is all part of a balanced viewpoint of Lefebvre. The idea that it turned into a society of the common life without vows uh, to me was something that was uh, absurd because uh, I had been in the Cistercian order uh, for two years, and we had two years of courses um, uh, on, or uh, two years actually of, of uh, uh, studying of the canon law and the rights of religious and the obligations of religious. And all of these things. Um, the the order was run according to a whole book full of rules, and and all of the um, prescriptions of canon law were followed. And uh, you had certain rights, you had certain obligations, and the uh, you know this was hundreds of pages of stuff. And you had nothing like that in the Society of Saint Pius X. You had a twenty pages of of type stuff, double spaced, and that was it. And uh, you had. Um, uh, as Bishop Dolan said, in effect, uh, the superiors had no obligation whatsoever uh, towards you. That has not changed, and you can see that in the latest, in the fate of the um, latest three priests in France of the Society of St. Pius X, that uh, they uh, are on the way out, and there's oh, well, nothing they can do. Oh, that was a forgery, Father. That was, that was a conspiracy. Oh, yeah, that that's was right. <laughs> I should also point out that at this point, uh, the organization becomes truly Lefebvreist, that there has been so much zigzagging uh, and doctrinal change that the only, it's clear that the only survivors in it will be those who are so personally attached to Archbishop Lefebvre that they will change their minds as he changes his mind and go in whatever direction he leads them no matter if it was if that direction should be completely opposite of what was yesterday uh doctrinally and liturgically or whatever it is and that principle was out the door that, so the that was really there. crystallized yeah. at yeah. this point that that if yeah. you were to be a survivor you had to be a lefevrist <clears throat> that sounds very familiar, actually. That sounds like an article that was written some time ago uh, uh, <laughs> called The Mountains of Jilboe, uh, which which you can find at traditionalmass.org. I'll post that on Twitter. And for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Um, our guests today are His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, and Father Anthony Chicada. And we're talking about the split in 1983, the expulsion of nine American priests from the Northeast District of the Society of St. Pius X, and we have three of the culprits with us today discussing what happened then and uh, reflections 30 years on. I, I think we're up to, let's say, 1980, Your Excellencies and Father, and the, impo the imposition of, let's say, a, an unofficial or official don't ask, don't tell policy on set of Vicontism. Is that fair? Yes, that was it. That's essentially it, yeah. Well, that, that, was, that developed that was, in 1980 when there was a, 
1979, the letter went out, and I remember receiving it, that the uh, the society cannot bear to have within its bosom anyone that that uh, says that John Paul II is not the Pope and will not mention him in the canon. And then the guillotine was brought out uh, with that, that if you don't mention him in the canon, you're out of the society uh, with that same due process of law that, <laughs> that Father, I'm being sarcastic, that Father Chicada mentioned, or Father Bishop Dolan. Uh, so there were a number of uh, expulsions in France, Father Guépin, Father G Belmont, and these were high-profile people. They had been at Acone since day one. And although, you know, there were not a great many expulsions, uh, for that time it was quite a bit, because they, were, they had, you know, maybe a total, less than 100 priests at the time, uh, there were you know, four or five expulsions in France, uh, and uh, it became clear that the same was going to be done over here. Well, Archbishop Lefebvre came over in the spring of 1980, and uh, in a meeting in which it was expected that the Sede Vacantis priests would be kicked out, uh, they came to a, a uh, don't uh, don't ask, don't tell uh, agreement, whereby if you keep your mouth shut about what you're doing and you don't uh, spread it around, that you are not mentioning him in the canon, then you can stay in the Society of St. Pius X. And, and how it happened? How it happened? Excuse me. That really illustrates the the reality of of Archbishop Lefevre's society. It's all about Lefevre. Um, so he came to the priory in uh, in Long Island on on a May evening, and we had organized um, uh, May devotions with uh, benediction. And he saw that, and he was edified by that, and also the fact that the people heard that the archbishop was coming, so the people came. So then he thinks to himself two things, I'm thinking. Uh, they're not so bad. Look, these priests, they're, they're pious, and they, they haven't turned the people against me. Look at all their people who have come out to see me. So, again, it's something personal. And he's thinking to himself, well, just as he made an arrangement on the one hand with, with uh, John Paul II, he could make an arrangement with the state of Acantus on the other side. And so... I think the the first night he had intended to expel us, and then the next morning after breakfast he proposes a deal, yep. and it, it, it's it's a deal based on don't ask, don't tell, and we'll be you'll be quiet and discreet, and we'll make this work. So, so I think that we, you're supposed to to sleep on it or have the meatloaf or. Well, well, the meatloaf came later, um, but it was it was the sleep on thing. He he slept on it because he he did because we I I think everybody was so friendly. And that that took him aback, and 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 since it's all about Lefevre, well, you know, everyone was friendly to Lefevre, and so why not make a deal? But that's a uh, very yeah, important see. point. Excuse me. That that question was settled in 1980. Yes. And there it, there was no question of that in 1983, and the society mendaciously per, said that this is the reason why they're leaving. Yes. In 1983. That was a lie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That had all been settled. Yeah. Well, so it was settled in 1980, so uh, shall we say there was a period of peace granted to the world at this time, and you, uh, <laughs> you were able to operate, uh, you were able to oper
1980 was a very stormy visit. Then in the spring of 81, he came, and I was just about, I was in, in the process of launching the fundraising for the, the extension of the seminary in Richfield. And in the, we went out to uh, do the dedication of the church in Minnesota, and I said to him, you know, by the way, there's a, a, a building in Winona, Minnesota that has just come up, and you might want to, uh, to consider that instead of building. Building is very expensive and troublesome. Well, he he lashed out at me in the car, I remember it, and he said, you know, you're never happy, and, and he just wanted, yeah, I, I just kept my mouth shut after that. And ironically, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> they did not build in Ridgefield, Connecticut. They went out to Winona, Minnesota. So uh, that's. Uh, but the 1981 visit overall went very well because the the tensions were down until right at the end when I was about to drive him to the airport. He told me that the it would be necessary to accept the John the Twenty Third breviary and missile in the seminary. Mm. And so, I oh no. And so we had this big discussion on the way to LaGuardia Airport about the John the 23rd missile and breviary. And uh, little did I know at the time, but this was in preparation for the reconciliation with the modernists. I, mean, I found that out next, the following year, in 1982. And, uh, but that's, that, this was preparing the society for uh, pleasing the modernists. Can I can I ask Bishop Dolan what was going on in England in 1981? Oh, I was I was back already. Okay. So I was uh, actually back in in Jan late January of uh, 1977. So but were there any rumblings uh, like this going on over there at the time? So was it just an American issue? I, think I don't that know. Uh, Father I, uh, Morgan was was being replaced by Father Black, and and it was the same thing of the. The, the society exerting a, a legal control over the properties and uh, certain changes that were being enforced. And uh, there was certainly grumbling and rumbling. But probably the English were just keeping a stiff upper lip and being English and drinking more tea and things. So they were, they were dealing with it somehow. <laughs> I think it was There's not too much that happens in England. I mean, no, it, no, it no, is. It's never been a, a, an yeah. active place for the, for the traditional movement. Because you've got to speak in, in low tones, anyways, you know, so you don't get overheard. So, <laughs> I wanted to mention about the about the eighty-one Minnesota visit. My memory, from a liturgical point of view, that uh, he was dedicating uh, Archbishop Lefevre was dedicating our church in St. Paul, Saint Persistus and Martinian, in May of that year, uh, that, and um, the prequel, if you will, to this idea that from now on they would have to accept the the new missile and breviary of John the 23rd was that about a quarter of the way through the uh, dedication ceremony of the church he got annoyed at me and demanded his little traveling John the 23rd pontifical that he had in his suitcase so I went in and I got it for him and then at that point I just gave up because John the 23rd had elaborated a new sort of a hybrid dedication of a church with elements of the consecration of a church, a much more solemn and long-lasting ceremony. And he kind of just conducted that himself then. After that, I thought, well, you're on your own, because I had no idea what was going on then. And then soon thereafter, within a day or two, he announces to, uh, to then Father Sanborn, this is what you'll be doing from now on. Yes, yes. So uh, 
Now, I thought it was uh, contained only in the seminary. I thought he wanted uh, the John the Twenty Third only in the seminary. So, the following year, in 1982, when he came, I said to him, "I'm going to resign as rector of the seminary because I really can't live with this, uh, and I can't put this through. This is just something I cannot do." And uh, so uh, he was on notice that I, I just couldn't do this. So. Uh, in the fall of that year, after the um, uh, the chapter meeting of 1982, uh, he is assigned Bishop Williamson as the vice rector, with the view that I would go out and he would come in as the rector, which was fine with me in the sense that you know I, that was the decision I made and that that was what I was going to do. The, the the thought was though that he was not going to impose it on the churches and the parishes and that we could continue as we were in the parishes. Now, if I had known that he had the intention of, of imposing it in the parishes, uh, then I, I think I would have acted differently in the whole thing. And, and we didn't realize it uh, at the time, but we learned in 1983 uh, that, uh, in fact, it, he had been carrying on negotiations with the Vatican to make some sort of a deal, and had been uh, uh, corresponding with them, and this was uh, all of this seemed to be sort of a, a part of the plan that you have a um, uh, that uh, he would present to them some sort of an idea that uh, the whole organization has a unified liturgy, and also there was the legal question. I think, uh, in retrospect, of the control of all the properties. Then, at that point, this became very important. They started asking questions about that, even though uh, in 1980 he had an entirely different policy. I think that it was in, in, in view of perhaps being able to tell the Vatican that, uh, you know, we can wrap all of this up in one big package that I control for you uh, between uh, with one organization under all of these same rules, uh, all owning the same properties, so there are no more... Uh, divisions or competition for your diocesan churches uh, with uh, uh, the same liturgical rites. Yes, we learned it. We learned that these were things, these negotiations were going on with the then uh, Cardinal Ratzinger uh, in 1983 because one of the nine priests was uh, doubtful about whether he should leave or not and was talking to Bishop Williamson and others, then Father Williamson and others, that you know, in doubt as to whether he should leave and. He was invited out uh, of the seminary, which was then in turmoil, uh, and he was given uh, confidentially uh, all of the correspondence between Bishop, uh, rather, uh, yes, Archbishop Lefebvre and Cardinal Ratzinger in view of a reconciliation with the modernists. And the, and the message was, stick with us, because we're going places. We're going to get fixed up by the the new religion, and uh, you know this is a dead end street. Uh, what you're what you're thinking about? Uh, so there was actually a. It's odd that that Bishop Williamson should be on the other side now, but at the time uh, he was uh, putting out bait, so to speak, uh, of a of a modern a reconciliation with the modernists uh, in 1983, but that had started in 1982. And in the course of that visit in 1982, Archbishop Lefebvre had me translate a conference for him uh, to the seminarians in which he explained 
that uh, that it was necessary to take the John the Twenty Third liturgy because the Vatican would never accept us if we had the pre nineteen fifty five liturgy. Mm. So we see it's very clear that it was a preparation for a modern uh, reconciliation with the modernists. Now those rec- that those negotiations broke down at a certain point, uh, but then they they were restarted again. Uh, even after Assisi, which is 1986, in which Archbishop Lefebvre brushed with state of Acantism, uh in, in his declaration with Bishop de Castromayer. Uh, uh, but they uh, started up again, and they, uh, as you know, in May of 1988, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre signs the protocol, which is, uh, which is an abominable document, uh, in which uh, he was, gave away effectively the whole store, to uh, the modernists, and the next day he repudiated it. Uh, that everyone knows that story of Archbishop Lefebvre. So, but uh, that, that's so the John the Twenty Third. The use of the John the Twenty Third rubrics and liturgy was very much uh, part of this whole idea to reconcile with the modernists. It should also be pointed out that they don't use the John the Twenty Third in the sense that <clears throat> they still say the Confidior before communion which he uh, suppressed. Uh, and um, so there's no idea of obeying the Holy Father. <laughs> it's just what Archbishop Lefebvre wanted. That's, that's the bottom line. It's what he wanted. Uh, they accused us uh, in rejecting the John the Twenty Third liturgy of not obeying the Holy Father. Uh, and in fact, they didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, of course they did not take his, uh, you know, the, uh, the the commands, and they never did. They had no sense of of saying, well, this is the date that we will stick to and and go by these rules. They never had that. It's what Archbishop Lefebvre wanted. And I, uh, uh, I I I brought that up to His Excellency during during our expulsion conference, and. Um, I'm afraid he. I, I'm afraid he was someplace between shocked and really insulted that I dared to tell him. But I said, "You don't have the authority to set the set the rules for the sacred liturgy. Only Rome can do that." And he was really insulted that I mentioned that to him. But that but that happens to be true. And of course, that's that's one of the big problems, isn't it? But I wanted to uh, jump in here and say something about we were talking before about the preparations, say between AD eighty one and then our our expulsion a few years later, the preparations for that. It wasn't, and our listeners must not think that it was purely uh, liturgical, some sort of a battle about, a uh, uh, recondite battle about certain liturgical books or not. It was, um, it had to do with Catholic morality. The, what, what really sparked it was this, that I had as a mission coordinator out in the West uh, uh, a man who had a conciliar marriage annulment. And, uh, then Father Kelly, to his credit, insisted with me that I bring the matter up to him, and I was reluctant to at the beginning. I remember because I knew this was going to just be, this was just going to be a mess. But I did bring it up to him. The man wrote to uh, the Pius X headquarters. Who would that have been, Bishop Samborn? Did he wrote to? He wrote to. Uh, uh, he wrote to the Archbishop. And, uh, to the Archbishop. Uh, Father Father Patrice Laroche. Laroche, and General Secretary. Right. He answered in the Archbishop's name. Yeah, and then as to, to saying that you can you can certainly live in good conscience with your second wife. Those cons- those annulments are absolutely valid. That's an act of the church, and don't worry about it. That's what scared us. The practical they were preparing for the practical uh, in the conciliar church. They would say pastoral implications 
of this embrace of the Church of, of, of Vatican II, of the Church of the Revolution. And uh, so you have to, now we're going to accept the conciliar annulments too, I guess. And that was certainly Lefebvre's policy that came, that came from his secretary general. Another thing to uh, bring up in, the, in that regard is that uh, there was also the question of the uh, new rights of ordination, uh, the new rights, the Vatican II rights of ordination. When um, uh, I had gone to Icona as a seminarian, I had held up some hopes of um, converting some of my friends who were still in the Novus Ordo seminaries who were somewhat conservative. So I went uh, as a seminarian. How ecumenical of you, Father. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Nothing if um, not. <laughs> so I got a. Uh, I went to talk with the archbishop to ask him uh, about what this possibility would be for these guys, and um, uh, I said, you know, would we accept them as, as as priests? And he said that well, the new right of priestly ordination is uh, doubtful because they've subtracted a word from from the form. So he said that uh, uh, that's doubtful and that the new rite of Episcopal consecration is invalid because they've completely changed the form. So we would have to do something else with uh, uh, with these fellows. So uh, that was my impression. Um, and as I eventually investigated these uh, different matters to sort of find them out for myself. But then um, in the United States, uh, at a certain point, uh, there was a um, uh, priest who had been ordained in the New Rite who uh, started to work with the Society of St. Pius X, uh, Father Philip Stark. And uh, he had been ordained in the New Rite. And naturally, we found this quite disturbing because we were members of the same organization, sort of under the same roof. And this man was going around uh, conferring sacraments that were doubtful, if not invalid. So we uh, tried to, to raise the issue uh, somewhat discreetly in a, a theological articles in our magazine. Uh, eventually, Archbishop Lefebvre told us to um, uh, that it, uh, we really should not write about uh, these issues, but. Uh, we had to get to a point where we could tell our people that you can't go to this man's mass, which we did. Um, and uh, that was extremely disturbing to us, and that became a uh, major issue. Uh, one of the uh, uh, principal difficulties we had with Archbishop Lefebvre. And you can see in, uh, again, with, with hindsight, if he is in the process of uh, in these uh, years in the 80s of making a deal uh, under the table with the Vatican for recognition, he is not going to want someone in the organization to say that the rights that they use are doubtful or invalid. Mm-hmm. So this, this as well was a, a, a large issue was, uh, that, that, that figured in our dispute with him. Yes, and that came to a head when I had my final meeting with him in 1983, uh, and um, uh, I was with Father Schrimperger and, and him, and uh, one of the objections that I brought up to him, Archbishop Lefebvre, was that he himself had said to me years before that the consecration of bishops in the Novus Ordo is invalid in his mind. And I said, you know, how can we have anything to do with them if they have an invalid episcopacy? 
And he said, well, apparently it's valid, and it pointed to Father Schmidtberger, and uh, he says uh, 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 that, um, yes, it, Father Schmidtberger said, yes, it comes from the Eastern Rites, so it's valid. So, I mean, that was the judgment, and, you know, apparently it's valid, and Father Schmidtberger says that it comes from the Eastern Rites. <clears throat> Father well, Schmidtberger looks you to us, then. <laughs> right, with those two. Uh, you know, this this uh, something that is of major, major, uh, maximal concern to the Catholic Church, the validity of of orders, and the episcopacy itself should be in the hands of, well, apparently it's right, it's all right, and, and yes, it comes from the Eastern Rite. And we find out from Father Chicada's research that it is an installation formula uh, of a patriarch who has already been consecrated a bishop, and therefore uh, has nothing to do with conferring the fullness of the priesthood. and But this was the cavalier attitude that was taken towards something of such great importance. But they had already decided that it was valid because they needed it to be valid in order to prepare themselves for the reconciliation with the modernists. Well, and we, we, we talked about this before the show, about this being a, a perfect storm, really. And with all of these different things happening, you all realized that this, this was really the end. And so you started putting together the letter, which we still have today, I would say, as the charter of the issues that the society still faces. I think it was as valid then as it is now. And we've talked about some of those. I think we talked about pretty much all of the issues in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the original letter. And I think, I guess I would, I would uh, take us back to the, the spring 1983 because that's when the letter was in full composition, and, and Bishop Sanborn, you were working on that at the time, correct? Yes, we all contributed. Uh, uh, then Father Kelly uh, wrote uh, wrote the, the main draft of it, and we all, uh, Father Chicada and I, contributed to it. Uh, the what what set it all off was that Father Thomas Zapp, who was ordained on November third, nineteen eighty two, uh, was uh, he went to St. Mary's, Kansas. And there used, uh, continued to use the what he had learned in the seminary, and that was the pre-1955 rubrics. And he was told to say mass for the nuns there, the SSPX nuns. Well, the nuns didn't like the fact that he was using that missile, so they complained to Switzerland that he was not using the right missile. And uh, what came back was either use the John the Twenty-Third, or else we'll kick you out. Now, when that came back, it was obvious that they had, again, dusted off the guillotine and were ready to do battle and really throw out anybody that was not going to change the missile and breviary. And uh, so that was uh, that changed the picture entirely. We saw that we were up against something very, very serious and something had to be done. So it uh, uh, it just changed us all completely. We had thought up to then that maybe we could live in peace with them, but it was not but possible. This made all of the issues sort of uh, really coalesce, and the, the uh, annulment, the liturgical changes, the uh, sort of the idea of the substitution of um, uh, you know the ideas of Archbishop Lefebvre for those of the uh, the magisterium, the um, uh, invalid ordination rights. And it, it all just really came together, and as you say, it, it uh, really was a perfect storm from that uh, from that point of view. I should add to this. 
this little detail, uh, that when we were at the chapter, then Father Kelly and I, in uh, 1982, Father Kelly, coming out of those discussions in the chapter, was so disgusted by the fact that they were so mixed up on theology and their attitude toward the Novus Ordo and the new religion, that he wanted to quit there and then. And he said, these people are all mixed up. They, they, have, they don't know, you know what they think or what they're doing. And I talked him out of it. Uh, but he was ready to do it just to pack it in at that point. So you know, this was a building thing. I, I just add that as a, to show that the, 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 it was a, a problem that was building up and building up. And it just came to a head with the catalyst of the threat to throw out Father Zapp from, from the Society of St. Pius X. Well, now would be a good time to, to bring up about the, the meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, do, I, I do want to talk about that, but I just want to linger for a moment on this issue, okay. because over the years, the Society has expelled almost as many priests as they've ordained, or expelled, or had, they've, they've left. And my question is, they've accustomed lay people to the idea that you can just kick out a priest. If, if, if he's if he's misbehaving, you can just kick him out, like firing an employee. And I wanted uh, both uh, your excellencies and Father, whoever would like to take the question. It, you know, what is the church's attitude towards the, just the simple expulsion of of a of a incarnated or even just a titled priest? Well, I mean, it's it's sort of like you know what. Um uh, the church's attitude toward the bishop is, is uh, who ordains a priest is sort of like a parent who whose kid wants a puppy. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, they say, okay, that uh, you know, you uh, you, you insisted we we get him. Now you take care of him, All right? So mm-hmm. the bishop has has an obligation uh, under church law, uh, really toward the priests whom he ordains, and that's something that's uh, that's very clear. And in the society, you simply that uh, was something that you simply never had. If you were out, you were out on the street. And even if you were someone with considerable problems, say psychological problems or anything like that, it really didn't make a lot of difference. The the relationship between a bishop of a diocese and his priest is contractual, in this sense that the bishop of the diocese must provide decent sustenance to the priest, that's in canon law, mm-hmm. uh, and the the priest uh, in return owes him obedience. And so decent sustenance means that you're going to make a pittance of a salary, really, if anything, but the bishop is obliged to support you for the rest of your life mm-hmm. uh, in uh, with housing and transportation and all the other things that pertain to decent sustenance as it is defined you know in various regions of the world but uh so the uh to throw out a priest after you have paid him let's say a pittance of a salary maybe you know a few thousand dollars a year to throw him out at let's say age 50 without anything uh it is a crime it's a mortal sin to do that and uh, I, I would add to that, uh, Your Excellency, that not only uh, that the regulation, uh, strictly speaking, applies sure to the um, uh, diocesan bishops primarily in terms of the contractual relationship uh, and, and the obligation a, a priest has uh, to obey his diocesan bishop, but uh, also uh, even any bishop 
the law of the church reads, any bishop really who uh, ordains a priest, uh, even illegally, has an obligation toward him as as, as far as his his uh, uh, sustenance goes. So that it even goes beyond that. Yes, it is. There's a natural law there. Uh, yes. Uh, to ordain a priest and just set him out to a pasture or drop him off at the edge of the road is against natural law. Uh, it's just not right. It's against the very nature of the Catholic Church to to have priests running around looking for bread in in, in waste paper baskets or, or trash cans. <laughs> you know, the the uh, there there is a, a natural contractual relationship there and a natural care that uh, that uh, is on the bishop. Uh, so to that practice of just kicking people out betrays the fact that they didn't see it as a true canonical situation. They saw it as uh, a group of priests that were working together and if you didn't work out you got kicked out. It's something like a club or a, an association or uh, th- that that wasn't really their minds concerning the nature of that society, because if they had uh, a- an idea of a of a, an obligation toward the priest, they would have gone through a trial and uh, uh, a, a you know a proof that uh, that their contractual relationship was no longer obligatory, and given the priest uh, an ability to respond. Yes, and you can never have done something like an expulsion summarily like that in either religious order or congregation or in a society of common life without vows, which they claim to be. It simply doesn't work that way. Uh, Difficulties like that are all governed by rules. And um, as Bishop Sanborn says, the the, uh, fact that they acted so summarily really shows that uh, they didn't uh, take seriously the idea that they were, in fact, a uh, uh, society of the common life without vows. Otherwise, they would have had some rules like that. And and remember, all of this is because all of these priests, the hundreds of them, were unable to ride the wave. They weren't all of them really adept surfers. And you you have to be able to catch the wave and ride the wave and stay with it when the society went this way or that way. It seems to me that analogy may have been used before, too. Possibly. And you have to be careful because Frankie and Annette may be on the left. Who knows what's on the right? Yes, you have to tell it. I think think your excellency that if the surfboard goes the wrong way, you end up with a vacant sea out in a vacant (laughs) sea. Not mistaken. I believe For those of you who are just joining us, it's a bit of in, inside baseball here at uh, Clerical <laughs> Conversations on the Crisis. Um, yeah. If you're joining us today, if you're just joining us, we're uh, with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, and Father Anthony Chicada, and we're discussing um, how uh, we got to the 1983 crisis and uh, their expulsions. Um, and we're in the second hour of the show now, so if there are people who'd like to put questions to three of the nine, I suppose one-third of the the group that was there, um, please feel free to call in. Um, if you'd like to submit questions on Twitter, you can do so by going to our handle. Uh, if you go to Twitter and you type in at True Restoration and put in your question, it will come to us in our feed and we'll be able to ask it. In the meantime, uh, while we're waiting for that, I'm sorry, go ahead, Father. Uh, I was going to say that I assume that anyone with an Argentine accent goes to the top of the queue. Yes, absolutely. We will take all Argentinian calls immediately. 
okay. <laughs> or anyone who's choosing a first-time, never-used-before uh, uh, name. Handle on um, Twitter, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, two of you were in the room, uh, and this is obviously a time before Internet and tweets and, and uh, text messages, so uh, Bishop Sanborn, then Father Sanborn, was not at the location with you when, when the confrontation with the Archbishop happened, so he just had to wait it out. Uh, until uh, until afterwards, but uh, can we talk about how we got to having that meeting, and then just walk us through the meeting and what happened at that point? Okay, so well, here's here's kind of what happened. Um, so Bishop Sanborn, or, or rather Archbishop of Hever, came over to the United States with um, the idea of uh, taking care of business, as it were, at the seminary and uh, removing Father Sanborn. Uh, installing Father Williamson and seeing to it that his um, uh, line was was followed at the seminary, and his uh, obviously from what had happened to Father Zapp, the uh, we could see the writing on the wall that uh, he the Archbishop was going to enforce his his program and his uh, ideas eventually on us as well. The we written him the the letter with these different points and uh, we wanted to see uh, some of these issues resolved by the archbishop one way or another well uh, after the archbishop removed uh, father sanborn as, as rector of the seminary he was um, uh, just simply going to go he wasn't going to come and see us down at oyster bay but we insisted that um he come down and see us uh, because we wanted to talk about these issues. So uh, on uh, April 27th in 83, Archbishop Lefevre came down to Oyster Bay Cove with um, uh, Father Williamson uh, and then with uh, Father Franz Schmidtberger, who by that time was the vicar general of the society. He had, uh, in effect, been elected to succeed Archbishop Lefevre. So... Um, we went downstairs to a meeting room at Oyster Bay, and uh, I uh, passed out uh, to the people present a list of the six resolutions that we had put as the practical conclusions of our letter to the Archbishop. And in the room that time, in addition to Father Schmidtberger and the Archbishop and uh, Father Williamson, it's myself, uh, Father Kelly, Father Dolan, and Father Eugene Berry. So we started to uh, discuss the different points in uh, the letter. The archbishop uh, opened the discussion criticizing Father Zapp. Uh, I tried to pin the archbishop down on the issue of uh, ordaining priests who had been um, ordained in the new rite. Uh, we really didn't get anywhere with him. He said that the, the priest we were talking about, it would be better if he were ordained, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I pushed him to get a clear answer, and we really didn't get one. So we figured, well, then what about the John the Twenty Third liturgy? Well, we discussed that a little bit. Uh, he denied that the society had permitted the uh, use of the older missile before, which was false. It was in the um, acts of the uh, previous general chapter of the society. And he um, uh, 
got annoyed at us and said that we really didn't think with the society. And uh, Father Kelly and I then sort of went up a wall because the, the, the uh, phrase really is, is um, uh, the normal phrase that one uses is, is to think with the church, with the mentality of the church. And uh, we got into the issue then of, of uh, accepting the position of the society. And then, uh, again, there was a um, discussion of the John the Twenty Third uh, liturgy, and, and Father Dolan uh, uh, had the discussion that he mentioned with the bishop uh, about, um, you know, who gave you the authority to do it. So uh, the discussion went um, around and around a little bit, like that for a while, and um, I tried to move the discussion along a little bit further and uh, to another point. And then uh, the archbishop noticed the last point that I had put on the paper, and uh, this was uh, the point that would deputize Father Kelly and I on behalf of the society to draw up any legal documents uh, that would bind corporations affiliated with the society to observe the resolutions that we'd proposed. And so uh, the archbishop, seeing that, went through the roof. Uh, and uh, because he realized that we were calling his bluff. And he said, you know, this is useless, uh, you're aggressive, uh, you know, take your liberty, I've had enough, go find a bishop, etc. Uh, the... Uh, because what had happened, the reason we put that in, what had happened before is uh, the archbishop, being a diplomat, would tell uh, you one thing at one time and another person the opposite thing at another time, uh, trying, I suppose, to, to placate all parties. And for us, these issues of the new right of ordination and marriage annulments um, uh, were just simply too serious that you couldn't go back and forth on it and that we wanted uh, a binding guarantee and if he wasn't going to give it well that's just one of those things so um, at uh, that point the meeting came to an end and Father Schmidtberger asked us about the uh, whole question of uh, the uh, different properties in the churches that we had and he suggested we keep the news from uh, of the disagreement from the faithful uh, so uh, as far as the uh, whole issue of properties we said that we weren't going to give any of them up and uh, that these issues were simply too serious for us but uh, we figure that maybe eating together would sort of bring down the level of tension a little bit so we uh, invited uh, the Archbishop and Father Schmidtberger and Bishop Williamson to have dinner with us, at least. Because and, you had, and you had precedent. You had precedent for this because um, Bishop Dolan had said that he had calmed down about an issue after he'd had a chance to sleep on it. Yeah, the, exactly. the, uh, the scene in, in but you, but you know what? 19- I, don't, yeah. I don't think it was calculated. I think that uh, I think we were just being polite. We were saying, look, uh, it's rush hour. You'll get traffic on the Long Island Expressway. By the time you get back to Connecticut, it'll be very late. Why don't you um, Why don't you have dinner with us? The meatloaf has already been prepared, and um, then that way you will you'll have your evening meal, and then you'll also avoid the rush hour. And Archbishop Lefevre was interested in doing that, as I, as we always say. I mean, who knows what would have happened? 
Yeah, with yeah, him, sure. Partaking sure. of our meatloaf. But uh, then what happened next, Father Chicago? Well, what happened next is uh, Bishop Williamson leaned over uh, and said to Schmidtberger in German that I don't want to eat with people like this. And so I said to Williamson in German, uh, careful, you never know who else in the room understands German. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I did say later that, um, you know, who knows actually what would have happened uh, if uh, we had uh, dinner with Archbishop Lefebvre. But that was that, and, and um, they uh, got up and and. We accompanied him out to the parking lot and uh, uh, kissed his ring and thanked him and said goodbye to him. And we were under the um, impression from what Father Schmidtberger said that we would sort of keep this all um, on the QT and that our lawyers lawyers would try to negotiate it. We'd keep it all from the faithful for the sake of sparing them that. But then we heard that uh, when they got back to the seminary, the first thing uh, they did was to uh, uh, write a letter uh, denouncing us to the people uh, and uh, raising, of all things, the Sede Vacanti issue, which was absurd uh, because it had nothing to do with anything that we discussed. Right. So uh, right. that that's what happened at that point in uh, April 1983. And, uh, it's important to point out too that we were still sitting on those corporations as directors, and uh, so it wasn't a question of uh, keeping them out of of something that they had legal title to or anything like that. We were we were sitting on those corporations, and we were not willing to resign from those corporations. Yes, and and um, in the uh, finally. Um, that when push came to shove, the majority, overwhelming majority of the people who had, um, in the uh, congregations that had chapels, supported us. They supported our stand and, yeah. and um, uh, you know, saw what we were doing as, as something that was necessary to do for them, too, because they had lost uh, their churches to the Novus Ordo already one time before, and they didn't want it to happen again. Well, um, I definitely want to continue talking about this. Um, we, I do want to. We've got a couple calls in queue. I just want to take one now while you you finished uh, your story, Father. And uh, I think it's from Christian. Christian, go ahead with your question. Oh, yes, hello, hello, Excellencies, uh, Bishop Sanborn yes. and Bishop Dolan and Father Chicara. I have a question. Um, what happened to the other the other six in the the, in the nine that were expelled? Well, let's see. Father Barry is saying mass in uh, in Colorado and uh, then, Colorado. Yes, and uh, and Bishop Kelly up in uh, in uh, upstate New York, and then Father Collins is also in upstate New York at a different location. Uh, let's see. Father Zapp is saying mass in uh, the San Francisco area of uh, California and Modesto. Uh, who else is there? Uh, Father Skirky is saying mass in uh, in Montana. And Father Jenkins in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, so, Your Excellency, these uh, these individuals are still active in the ministry. Oh yes. Oh yes. yes okay. Yeah. And I have another related question: The SSTX members who are expelled, do they uh, look up to you guys for 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 a for a job or job-related duties or something? 
Not yet. No one has, uh, has no one come yet. near us yet, no. <laughs> you see, we oh, are okay. sede vacantes, so, you know, in the view of those in the society, we are like monsters. Uh, okay. Because of the state of Vacantus position, uh, they they when they leave they they don't understand that they should become state of Vacantists. <laughs> they still want to hold the inconsistent position of the Society of Saint Pius X. So so we are not an option for them thus right. far. Well, there was the Father Abrahamovich. Uh, that might be uh, one exception to that. Yes, and then uh, then Father Neville too. Right, and then yeah, uh, yeah he so resigned the, of his own accord, though he was not kicked out. Oh yes, that's right. Okay, sure. Yeah. I will. Thank you, thank you for excellent yeah. season, and thank you, Father, for taking my call. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, for, thanks for your question. Well, I guess that, that let's go back to where we were. So, uh, meatloaf refused. Um, I guess he, he he would do anything, but just not that. And um, then. Um, <laughs> The court battles begin, and the legal stuff is, is boring, uh, although I did find it fascinating that depositions were conducted at 666 Fifth Avenue. Uh, I just I, I, I couldn't Uh-oh, believe that. Cats out of the bag. Wait till they hear about that also, one. I'm also going to file that under uh, under my trash conspiracy hat. But um, anyway, the, the depositions go on, and I think Father Chicada has an article which you can find on traditionalmass.org, which is called A We Resist You to Your Faith, um, in which a, lo- a lot of this is detailed. But eventually, the society loses, not only because of bad legal representation on their part, but because, as you said earlier, uh, the faithful uh, sided with you all, I-, I suppose probably because you had catechized them well as to, you know, what what was going on and what was being resisted. And it wasn't a set of a conscience issue. You were resisting phony annulments, uh, doubtful priests, doubtful sacraments, and an orientation of accommodation. Uh, I suppose the anti-accommodationists uh, could be another name for the night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in the question of the lawsuits, though, that it's not it's um, not really a question of, of winning or losing. It's only the lawyers, really, who win. Uh, on both sides, so uh, it's it's a uh, war of attrition. It's sort of like trench warfare conducted by snails, and it it takes you forever to get through the legal system. And we explain this to Archbishop Fever um, that um, you know you just don't know the American legal system. We should uh, come to some sort of an agreement, but. Uh, he and and his advisors had the idea that they were going to roll right over us. So it, it involves a whole <laughs> series of lawsuits uh, in uh, different states. And um, so they, the uh, there was one in uh, federal court, the Southern District of New York. There was uh, a, a lawsuit that was started by Lefebvre supporters in Virginia. Uh, there was another one in Eddystone, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, the uh, eventually there was uh, one in uh, Minnesota. Uh, we instituted as a way of pressure a libel suit against them in the Southern District of New York, and then brought a suit against them in Connecticut. So there's all this stuff going on, um, and uh, it's it's a it ends up being a uh, like a, a war of attrition. So. Uh, all of the uh, 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 higher-ups in the society at that point ended up having to come over to the United States and to give depositions and have their 
Uh, no, deposition is is a testimony under oath. Uh, that's it's generally taken in a lawyer's office, and you're sworn in, and the the lawyer for the opposing side asks you questions, and um, you have to answer the question. So uh, this. Uh, Archbishop Lefebvre had to do this several times. Bishop Williamson, Fillet did. Uh, all sorts of people had to do it and put in these different appearances. So what happened is uh, we uh, lost one suit. We kind of won uh, another suit. Uh, eventually what happened is we had been given a um, uh, some fairly good legal advice at the beginning of the lawsuits that uh, told us of... of um, a way if we wanted to uh, just to uh, get everything dismissed in New York and so uh, since it was a war of attrition we went on for four years and just before we were supposed to go to trial in New York we filed a motion with this this making this particular argument and then at that point the judge in New York uh, had us into his court and had the society representatives into his court and said that, look, uh, it's time that you really think seriously about settling this uh, because the argument that uh, these priests, the nine, make is, is actually pretty good. I could throw this all out and you'd have to go and, and fight for another four years in different states. Uh, and then he said to us, on the other hand, you never know what's going to happen in my court. You know, I could... Uh, award it all to them, so why don't we negotiate a deal? And so after four years in 1987, that's what happened. The judge had us uh, into his chambers in, in the summer in 1987, starting appropriately enough on the 4th of July, as I recall, and we we had our own fireworks, I guess, display in uh, the judge's chambers, and eventually we um, uh, did some horse trading and um, worked it out. They got some of the properties, we got other of the properties, uh, we paid them a little money, and in effect we kind of paid them off. Uh, but at the same, by the same token, uh, we were able to get some money back off the deal and uh, actually get rid of two properties that turned out to be in bad neighborhoods. So, I mean, um, it was um, uh, a so that's how it ended up. I think it's also important to note, Father, you can't really say that any properties were stolen when you've come to a legal settlement on the issue. You could no, say that prior to that, but if it's been settled, that means that's been settled. And so, yeah, continuing to say that stuff was stolen is is not only uh, untrue, but just uh, malicious. I think. Yeah, first of all, they didn't own it anyway, and they hadn't given them money for it. So that's the, that's the first point. But the second thing is that uh, the, you know, when you sign an agreement like that, that uh, you're uh, going to uh, take, uh, you know, a certain amount of money for something to settle the dispute, I think it's called condemnation. And uh, then that's it. There's no question of theft or anything like that. So you, you've arrived at a negotiated settlement. So, you know, you can't, they really can't say that. It's like having your cake and eat it, too. Yeah. Well, if you so. can have your Pope and eat him, too, and, and <laughs> so I can't have your cake. Um, we have a question coming in from Twitter, uh, a rather interesting stroke timely question. Okay. Uh, would either Bishop Dolan or Bishop Sanborn be willing to ordain Pope Francis I as a true priest? 
<laughs> well, is that I'd like to from take it. That it would depend as, as to whether he would pass his Latin classes. That's for the first thing. <laughs> he would have I to mean, make we, an abjuration of heresy first before we could even consider it. Uh, so, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I hope that didn't come from a Vatican account. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it doesn't say at as a gentleman named Mark. And uh, Mark, I hope that answers your question. Um, it would just depend on. Uh, on whether he would uh, would look at the true faith. And I think it's interesting. There's a lot of, uh, I, I don't want to talk too much about the topic. We'll talk about it another day. But um, this this sort of uh, hope that things would be different, um, it seems hope springs eternal. And uh, that's uh, something that's in the, the uh, trad breast. But, uh, but those of us who've been around long enough know that uh, the Yon just have sudden changes for no reason. Um, the problem and, is Vatican II. Even if he were... Wonderful on all other issues. The problem is Vatican II, and for as long as they adhere to Vatican II, the problem in the church will continue. Yeah, and uh, this this particular man, who I suppose we'll talk about at some point, uh, seemed to have been. Um, they say he was the main candidate against Ratzinger in the previous conclave. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, that makes one think that he has a little different take on the hermeneutic of continuity. Yeah, he would need to be ordained a priest, because he was ordained in the Novus Ordo Rite in December of 1969. Yes. So okay. that was not a vain question from Mark. It was a very good question. Yeah. Yes, that's so, right. Yeah, sure. it was, yeah absolutely. Um, well, Your Excellency and Your Excellency, I, I mentioned that Father. we already know how Father Chikata would have done things differently because he happened to write an article on this subject uh, a few years ago when I when I asked him to, to take a look at 25 years on. And Father, uh, for those who hadn't read your article, um, you might recap about, uh, you know, it, as, as time goes on and as we all get a bit more mellow, uh, that your, uh, you had some changes as to what you would have done differently, and maybe you could share that with our listeners. Well, uh, Stephen's being ironic. It wasn't. I, I didn't mellow, I think, with age. I think that the, uh, I said in the article that if I had had it to do over again, uh, I would have gone up to the seminary and changed the locks and locked Archbishop yeah, Lefebvre out and locked Williamson out, because it just gave them a basis uh, in the United States for uh, spreading the word about um, uh, how it was acceptable to have uh, doubtfully ordained priests work in your organization and uh, how it was acceptable to get modern annulments. So uh, I think that instead of mellowing, I probably would have taken a harder line. Uh, your Excellent uh, Bishop Dolan, would you have uh, would you have done anything differently? Uh Exactly what Father Chicada said. That I, I can truthfully say that is my only regret that we that we were not more aggressive uh, before we were expelled, and uh, that these things. But aside from that, everything I think was done that had to be done in order to maintain the integrity of the faith to the best of our ability. Yes, Bishop Tambor. Yes, uh, clearly, uh, looking in hindsight, uh, we should have been uh, more firm, uh, more aggressive in protecting the Catholic faith from the corruption 
of being reconciled with modernists who are the worst heretics that ever have invaded the church. And uh, so, yes, we, we should have had more zeal and uh, more firmness, you know, and yeah, I agree with that. Well, and all of you, this, this had a major effect in your life. You, you talked about the fact that once you finally left the organization, uh, you were free of some of the neuroses of the organization. You were able to step back and look at some of these things objectively, and uh, thing, things became even clearer for you. So this was obviously a watershed moment for your priesthood. Um, what do you think the effect was on people in the society, uh, maybe people on the sidelines? If you looked at the, the people in your chapels, uh, both at that time and as time has gone on, what was the what was the large when we look at the ripple effects the uh, the concentric circles out from the splash? What are your reflections on the, on those things? Well, people um, go go to church to go to mass. Uh, the the average person is relatively reluctant to get into big theological issues. They want to go to mass. They want to solve their problem. The new mass is bad. They know the traditional mass is right, and that's where they want to be. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think it was a, a hard burden on, on the people to have to go through all of this, uh, and as it was on us, too. But I think uh, the average layperson doesn't want to read a lot of tomes about theology in order to just practice his religion. Uh, but I think that they instinctively understood that it doesn't make any sense to be compromising with the very people that, we're trying to flee from. Uh, I think they understood that very, very basically and instinctively. Yeah, I. Um, whenever we have these splits, uh, I'm, I'm always uh, conscious of that. You know, the, you might say the scandal factor with 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 the faithful, and uh, it's 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 hard for many people to understand. They are indeed scandalized, and you do lose some people because of that. And it's all. It's all very unfortunate that we have to do, go through this and do this. But in as, in as much as we attempted to prepare the people by giving them a solid doctrinal formation in the real questions of the day, then most of the people in, indeed remained faithful, and um, the scandal was 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 really not so bad. The scandal was really with Archbishop Lefebvre, that he was two uh, two popes or two two men in one, and that that was really that that was the scandal. When I when I said earlier that I see the 1983 letter as a charter for what you were basing your resistance on, which was actual Catholicism, not a sort of sentimental uh, negotiation with these pretended authorities, did did this letter provide a springboard for other clergy, either Novus Ordo or traditional, to contact you to ask you some of these questions about some of these points? And when you look at these points, um, have any of them changed for the better in the society over the years? No, very, very little. We we did our best to try to draw out some that would, would be of, uh, let's say, good ideas in the Society of St. Pius X. I uh, even uh, started Sacerdotium, which was a quarterly journal for priests, uh, with a lot of articles that, that would make them think. And... Uh, it really had little effect. Uh, and the reason is that the priests in that group are incapable of thinking theologically. 
they are trained as goose steppers of the of the Society of St. Pius X uh, to follow the party line, to zig when it zigs and zag when it zags, flip when it flips and flop when it flops. And therefore, they're really not interested in, in what you're proposing. They are not capable of thinking on that level. It's all the archbishop and... and uh, the, what the prophet says, and uh, so you know, I, I learned that uh, early on uh, that uh, there's there's really no no independent thinking. Yeah, it's uh, he is the prophet. He is the man sent by God to solve the problem in the church. That's all we have to worry about. And now the discussion is is uh, who is faithful to the prophet. Is it the strict observance people? Are they faithful to the to the prophet, or is it the reconciliationists? Or are they faithful to the prophet? And by that I mean Archbishop Lefebvre. So you have this uh, probable split in the Society of Saint Pius X that's coming up, and now with this election of uh, this uh, new modernist pope, the uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, they'll probably approach this one and keep the comic opera going for another ten or twenty years, anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, unfortunate thing is that, um, you know, the, the, uh, there is always this appeal to the line of Archbishop Lefebvre and the, as if, you know, what he said was the ultimate uh, criteria that was the gold standard by which um, what you taught about the traditional Catholic faith was judged and what your attitude toward the Vatican was. And the unfortunate thing is you really see uh, the discussion since the uh, 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 prospect of the split and disagreement within the Society of St. Pius X over the question of some sort of a regularization. You you really see uh, different schools of thought, but it all goes back to uh, they all appeal to Archbishop Lefebvre. And it was... uh, something i suppose that we had uh, predicted all along we we talked about that that um uh, if there would be a split in the society of saint pius the 10th at any point it would be, you would have uh, one group and, and another group uh both of which claim to be uh, faithful to the inheritance of archbishop lefevre and unfortunately that's just what you see we wish it could be otherwise we wish that they would get beyond that and start to look at the real theological issues. You know, the nature of the authority of the church. The church can't give you something that's evil. The church can't give you uh, error in our universal ordinary magisterium. And um, get back to some, some solid, recognizable theological principles. I think that I, you could say that uh, uh, all of our weal and all of our woe, all the good, all the bad, comes from Archbishop Lefebvre in so many senses. Uh, and both sides, of course, can perfectly well uh, and accurately appeal to the spirit of the prophet and that their half of the mantle has fallen on their shoulders and, and they're wearing it. The one thing that, that, that needs to be said, almost as a kind of a summing up, is that uh, the one thing that we did not get from Archbishop Lefebvre was our Catholic faith. We received that at baptism. And sometimes you get the impression in the Lefebvre's circles that that too must be ascribed to the prophetic archbishop. Well, that's not true. I was already Catholic. Father Samuel was already Catholic. Father Kelly, we were Catholics when we went to Acon. And we wanted to be Catholic priests. That's why we went there. We didn't want to buy into 
this, um, this, the, the, this company of the prophet. That, that was something quite different. So uh, because we had the Catholic faith, we, we received a Catholic ordination through Archbishop Lefebvre, and then we as priests have always worked to, to serve, to spread the Catholic faith, to save souls. That's always been our interest. And so therefore, naturally, we came to a parting of the ways a long time ago. Those who were interested in, in um, being followers of the archbishop, quote-unquote, are now picking and fighting over the bones like snarling dogs, and they're welcome to the carcass. We're not interested in that. We, we never have been. Thanks for the right? I had a, a discussion with some very intellectual priests, very, very well-educated and sort of the cream of their crop, uh, uh, associated with the Society of St. Pius X back in the 1990s, and we had perhaps a three-hour discussion about the new about the the church and how the the position of the Society of St. Pius X is incompatible with the indefectibility of the Catholic Church. We went round and round and round on this, and I, I explained to them all of the traditional ecclesiology. Finally, at the end, the the uh, one of them says to me, "Well, the." Traditional ecclesiology doesn't apply to the present situation in the Catholic Church. I mean, after we've discussed it for three hours, and my mouth dropped. I, well, you know, well, what does? And and so the other one said, "Well, you find a bishop in whom you have confidence, and you follow him." Yes. And that well, said it all to me. That that yep. you know, I felt that they were defeated on the the battlefield of the traditional theology, and that they had to concede at the end that really, you know, all you do is follow the archbishop. Well, Bishop Dolan, you have um, I've been uh, interviewing Bishop Sanborn here on church church history, and at table he corrected. I, I had misquoted uh, Talleyrand, uh, who had said they had uh, they had remembered nothing. Uh, they had learned nothing and forgotten nothing, and it seems as though that probably applies best here to what you've been saying about uh, the. There's another people. quote from, uh, uh, about Talleyrand from Napoleon, but that's not something we're going to cite right now. <laughs> <laughs> about the Pius X Society, we'll probably just let that one go. Although you're welcome to you're welcome to Google it if you'd like to, listening audience. Um, that well, would pretty um, much sum up the society. Thanks, but go ahead. Well, we- <laughs> We have uh, we have someone with us who I would say is from the old days, Doctor Carrion. Am I pronouncing that correctly, sir? Yes, that's correct. Um, yeah, I have yeah. a question. Go ahead. Yes. Well, I I just wanted to comment that uh, I have uh, uh, very subtle memories, of course, with the uh, uh, Father Dolan and Father Sanborn before they became bishops, and it was in connection with the Emperor Power Church in Bay City. And it was the most embarrassing moment when uh, when Father Sanborn came to, to me and asked if he could say Mass at the, at the Infinite Prior Church. Here I was, a layperson, with the embarrassing situation to give position, uh, give permission or not from the same Mass. And I, I don't think I ever want to be in that situation again. And I'm glad that, as history has it, that both he and uh, Father Dolan are now bishops and I look forward to the future with them. And I just want to thank both of them for what they have done. Oh, thank you, Dr. Thanks, Doctor. Good. And I just have one uh, obvious question. Uh, as, if, if it is at all possible, your your phone interview is 
uh, is our ta- you know internet interview is at the same time as as uh, presumably uh, Pope Francis has been made a pope, and I just was wondering very quickly what where, where are we where are we at with him? I think well, we, I don't know much come, about him. I, I don't yeah. know if anybody else knows much about him either. Does any? He's, he's a, a he's communion a Jesuit and liberation from man. Argentina. Argentina. Yes. He's a Jesuit. Uh, uh, one of those so-called pastoral popes, I'm sure, but a, a product of the uh, of the new church, 100. percent Okay. Mm-hmm. He's the new church well, with and, the and, smiley and face. Dr. Carrion, we're going to have a show. We're going to have a show, on, a full-length show on uh, this new claimant um, in the next few days. Hopefully, just That's depending good. on everybody's schedule. So. Well, I appreciate it, Father. You kind of sent me another email because I've been looking forward to these. Uh, these inter, uh, these uh, internet uh, discussions. Oh, Great. Thank you. Well, Thanks I, very I much. You. Good day. Bye. Well, I guess that's a blast from the past there. Um, oh, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Commending your work. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, we are um, talking today with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Anthony Chicada on the inaugural episode of Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, a hopefully monthly show uh, which will discuss certain matters um, specifically about the post-Vatican II epic. And um, with with that, uh, any anything further? I know we were last talking about the what would happen with the the various faithful, and and we just heard from one who was there at the time. Um, and we talked about the fact that uh, people who, even if they go to um, they go to have a discussion with Bishop Sanborn at the end, they still can't admit what's staring them in the face. Um, do you have any further reflections on on this time period, on this event in your life, uh, and how how it has guided your priesthood, or will continue to guide you in the future? On, on the question of the, uh, you mean of the uh, dispute of the nine in 1983, on that mm-hmm. specifically, yeah. Um, the, well, I mean, it it, it did have, uh, I think, some very uh, long term, uh, long term effects that uh, you know are still with us uh, as a result of this because um, we were able to maintain our priestly ministries in most of the places that. Uh, we've been conducting them before the break with Archbishop Lefevre uh, and um, strengthen these different institutions and build up new institutions so that the people who, um, uh, so that if you look in terms of um, uh, where state of occultism is in different parts of the world, uh, America is absolutely the stronghold for it. And uh, the number of, of uh, mass centers between uh, our groups and other state of contest groups, uh, we have uh, perhaps 90, uh, 90 mass centers and several schools and seminaries and so on. So the um, getting out of the orbit of the Society of St. Pius X and operating according to um, consistent principles uh, I think uh, allowed us to establish, um, you know, all of these these different apostolates in this uh, country, and certainly this is good for the people and, and good for the future of the church as well. And uh, and as a result of this, the dispute, obviously, people became aware of uh, of these issues. 
I would like to say, I can't speak for the others, but I'd just like to say that, you know, we've said a lot of negative things about Archbishop Lefebvre today, but there is much positive about him, too, and he has to be commended for his uh, his good side and his, his courage uh, and his uh, strength and and abilities in, in setting up a seminary and, and going through all of the trouble uh, uh, that he did in order to, to try to train traditional priests, uh, uh, you can never take that from him. I mean, sure. it, was, it was unfortunate that he was mixed up in his own mind as to how to treat the Novus Ordo, but that, that doesn't, uh, we, none of us would be priests except for him. And, uh, and so we have to recognize that fact that despite his faults, that he, he did contribute a great deal to what we are doing today. Yes. And then for, you, furthermore, you'd have to say that I, I think that one could say he was a very fatherly man he was a very kind man and he was a very patient man as well as a diplomat and in his own in his own personal life uh, as a as a as a bishop extremely edifying a very holy and uh, and a saintly life certainly uh, was was the life that he led it's a, it's a real tragedy that this group that he established <clears throat> ended up being just so mixed up so unpleasant so full of weird people and weird ideas and it's caused so much grief to the church because he put that alongside of all these positive and true things that we were saying about the memory of archbishop lefevre now it's difficult to, it's difficult to compute the two of them together but that's the that's the tragedy you might say of what we're talking about in our in our radio show this afternoon Sure, and, and um, one realizes this, of course, as one gets older and uh, one's physical capacities start to slide a little bit. I mean, uh, he conducted this tremendous worldwide apostolate to keep things going and uh, travel all over the world to um, uh, all the continents and everything to uh, try to promote the Catholic faith. And that certainly was very, very edifying and very uh, heroic. And uh, it certainly kept the visibility of um, the uh, resistance to the Catholic faith, uh, to the modernist faith, on the part of, of uh, true Catholics, uh, very much in the forefront. So that was uh, the sacrifices he made there were uh, uh, certainly really astounding. And I think in his heart, you know, if we set aside his diplomacy, I think in his heart he was a dyed-in-the-wool anti-modernist. And left to his own inclinations of his heart and mind, uh, he would have proceeded well and 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 uh, had uh, would have had all the right ideas and made all the right decisions. But that diplomatic side and that idea to somehow reconcile with the modernists r- ruined, I think, all of that good that was in both his mind and his heart. Yes. And then I th- I think as long as we're speculating now, I think it might be accurate to say as well, uh, proper, the whole question of. Uh, his entourage surrounded by these young priests who perhaps had their own agendas and who certainly influenced him to a large measure uh, to, 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 to move in these, uh, in these um, confusing and illogical directions. That, that, that would play a large part in the explanation of how did that happen. Yeah. Yes, well, and the, because... the entourage is still around uh, wielding the levers of power. Uh, as far as I well, know. not all of them. Some of them are, have been have been shut out of the uh, of the power structure now, which is, of course, exactly what's going to happen. So you, somehow you're moving from a cone to the Kremlin in in, uh, in, in in about thirty seconds here. Interesting. <laughs>
Um, well, again, you if you're uh, joining us, we're at the very end of our show uh, today, um, the inaugural show of Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Um, we have been joined by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, and Father Anthony Chicada, three of the nine priests. Um, at the time, they were priests who were expelled from the Society of St. Pius X in 1983 um, over disputes about how to deal with the crisis, specifically uh, position towards the modernist Vatican, the, uh, the conciliar religion, as the Archbishop would sometimes call it, uh, when he was upset. Um, and uh, if you are joining us now, um, in a few minutes the show will wrap, and you can simply go and download our show and um, listen to it from the beginning. Um, as mentioned, through the show, we are hoping to have a, a show, um, it's going to be part three of the Restoration Radio series on the legacy of Benedict XVI, which is obviously one of his, one of his legacies, is who the next uh, pontiff, uh, at least the claimant to the papacy, would be. And uh, we'll try to do that show in the next few days. Um, I just would urge our listeners to be patient. You have to keep in mind that all of the clerics involved are very busy, and it's always a, a real blessing to have them on. And so, as always, I thank your excellencies and Father so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, we'll go out with uh, Diaz Gire, I suppose, um, and uh, we hope that uh, you'll you'll join us next time. Thank you again, Your Excellencies, for joining us, and Father. Thank you, Steve. Bye. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.